see, I didn't, I didn't talk about my background very much uh, at all because I got all completely immersed in CAP history, as I often do. Mm. Um, but one of the my my other part time job is I'm a skydiving instructor. Oh wow! And so I can I can tell you that I look at a jet suit at like like a suit like a jet pack kind of thing, and I go, mm. <laughs> now there's the jet man. You guys have probably seen uh, Eves Rossi, who's the guy. He's got the the Delta Wing jet that's got these two little jet motors underneath. Sure. Cool. That looks like fun. That jet suit thing with the you know oh here let me just grab this thing that looks like I'm holding four jet engines and what. <laughs> <laughs> what you know i'm like I, now i just saw a video a couple months ago where these guys were assaulting they, they were like royal marines and they were on like these these boats following a destroyer and they were practicing like boarding techniques using that kind of a suit you're right right it looked really nifty and i'm, I'm like it looks really nifty but the tactical like okay Here's what we're going to use. We're going to assault this ship that's that's been taken over by deaf terrorists who can't see anything. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> this thing's got to like it's got to be the loudest thing around, right? So, yeah, well, that's actually a good point because the videos never put the audio up. <laughs> I in in my in my that's a dead giveaway. In my military life, I was a um, uh, I was a helicopter mechanic in the army, and you know helicopters are loud. Turbine engines are loud. And <laughs> let me tell you, you know, somebody goes, oh, we got this turbine thing. We're going to sneak up on people. I'm like, you're not sneaking up on nothing. <laughs> not to mention, I mean, if you stop, if that, if we tried to do that, that jet suit with the, with the hand things, we're hikers. We have no upper body strength. It would rip our arms off <laughs> before we went two feet. <laughs> There'd be two arms flying through the sky in different directions. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, so uh, maybe I might get sort of a Jetsons experience where it's like uh, I'm not controlling it, but it sounds like we're still pretty far off in the future at this point. (laughs) Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking, and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. Okay, so gentlemen, uh, I just hit record here, so everything you say moving forward can be used against you in the court of law. So just be ready. <laughs> I knew it. So we typically just kind of dive into the That's start excellent. of the show with, a, with an opener between me and Stomp, so we will... Um, do a little bit of riffing. We've got some some housekeeping that we've got to put together. I'll do a show intro, and then from there, Stomp's going to take it over and do a an interview session with the Colonel, and then I'm going to do a session with Jack afterwards. So, okay. Any uh, any questions or anything before we get rolling? No. Which court of law? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to figure okay. that out. I think. Uh, <laughs> that will yeah, start exactly. at the district. Actually, some TV TV court show. Judge Judy. That <laughs> I'm there. I'm so there. Yeah. <laughs> nice. All right, Stomp. So we are on episode uh, 28, Civil Air Patrol. Do do I have to um, behave myself tonight? We have like adult guests with us, right? My impression is maybe, maybe not. <laughs> okay. Do, do me a big favor, though. Don't use cap. C-A-P. No. 
Use the full words. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I will. Just yep. FYI. Um, yeah, see, already we're getting in trouble, Stomp. <laughs> see? <laughs> forewarned is forearmed, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So... <laughs> anyway, so we're on episode twenty-eight here. Um, Stump, you, you you said something last episode about we're putting a group hike together or something f- with with us. W- what's that all about? Yeah, um, let's see if the listeners are interested in getting together for uh, a group hike. Maybe some trail that we've been talking about, and um, maybe we can put a poll up on Instagram or something like that and uh, get some feedback. See if anybody's even interested in hiking with us. That's probably <laughs> doubtful, I would think. So. Yeah, let's see. Let's feel the water yeah, I mean, and test I, it. I barely want to hike with you, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> yes, sir. Let's check it out. All right. So we got uh, we've got some guests here, so we want to get into some some details with them. But before we do that, do you want to talk about uh, anything to do with sponsorships or anything like that? Our weekly uh, thank you to Reckless Brewing up in Bethlehem, where you'll enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch, uh, many 4,000 footers, and less than 10 minutes from the Five Corners. And we will be having uh, Steve Rodriguez in soon to talk about some upcoming events and uh, some new uh, craft beer on the menu in about a week or so. Anything else with sponsors or coffee or anything like that? Well, I think we have some big news. Um, by the time this show airs, we will probably cap 20,000 downloads over 28 episodes. So that's pretty cool. Big thanks to all the listeners. You know, the majority of the listeners are continental USA, but it is a worldwide audience. You have the weirdest mix of countries and things that are listening. So thank you very much, everybody. 20K is pretty cool for us. And, uh, you know, it's jumping up there pretty quick. Yeah, people are actually listening. I'm personally taking credit for India listeners, <laughs> Poland. I'm taking credit for the UK and um, Costa Rica because I probably forced my coworkers to listen. <laughs> I, there's like, yeah, it, it's funny, the uh, the spread on some of the countries. We'll get yeah. into that some other time, but... Uh, very good. All right. So, Stomp, tonight uh, I uh, we're excited to uh, to welcome Colonel Darren Ninez. Is that is that the right pronunciation for your name? Ninez, like the Book of World's Records or the Stout. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. So, we're excited to welcome um, <laughs> Colonel Darren Ninez, the New Hampshire Wing Commander for the U.S. Air Force Civilian Auxiliary. And Darren is joined with um, senior member Jack Daly, who is a newly minted member of the Civil Air Patrol. So tonight we're going to learn about Civil Air Patrol's history, their mission in the Granite State, a little bit about how they operate, and we're going to learn what distinguishes them from other air and ground operations. Hopefully we'll get a little bit of a glimpse into a few prominent missions that Civil Air Patrol has participated in. And then later in the show, we're going to talk with Jack about his recent experience joining the Civil Air Patrol and discuss some of his adventures in the White Mountains. So he's he's quite a hiker. So we've got some some good stories, I think, to cover with him. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Just as I said, I'm Mike. Stomp was drinking his coffee. (laughs) Did you catch that? (laughs) I I was like, oh, no, I better slow down. I almost choked on that Java. Oh, my God. Yeah. Exactly. Well, speaking of coffee, so we (laughs) normally would do a little bit of talk about what we're drinking for beer here, but um, we're prepping for sober October. Mm -hmm. So are you you ready for this stuff? I'm practicing. (laughs) It's like a training training regimen. Start really small and build up. You know what I mean? So yeah, I should be ready for the uh, turn of the month. 
<laughs> What's the point of Sober October again? Are we doing this to lose weight or are we just doing this to, to not drink? Uh, I think it's a combination of things. Yeah, definitely. I want to trim a couple pounds. And um, like I said, I, previous episode, I, I just need more energy. And when I, I drink, I just feel sort of tired, wake up tired, that type of thing. So yeah. How about you? You trying to trim up? <laughs> I got to lose. Yeah, I probably got to lose some weight. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll drop five or 10 pounds when not drinking. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, we're going to do the sober, sober October. I think this is Stomp's dumb idea. Yes, so we'll, it is. we'll see how well we we handle it. Well, I've been practicing. Anyway. I've been practicing because we have a new, we'll, we'll do a new coffee segment. So it'll be, hey, Mike, what's in your cup? <laughs> I've been practicing. Yeah, but we're gonna, if we're going to do coffee segments, we're going to have to do, we're going to have to record every show in the morning because I'm not drinking at seven, mm. eight o'clock at night. Yeah, I hear you. Mm. But this is a nice roast here. This is a blueberry. It's nice. Mm. No, not my thing. I like regular strong coffee, but um, All right. we'll see. So we'll, we'll keep everyone updated on Sober October. But Stomp, do you want to get into introducing our guest now? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited about this. Um, welcome, Colonel. Um, and of course, Jack, uh, thank you guys so much for coming out. Um, Colonel, I understand that you assumed the role of Wing Commander uh, January 15th last year. Is that correct? That is correct. 60 days before uh, we shut everything down for COVID-19. Yay! <laughs> Yay. Oh, jeez. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, congratulations. Um, I'm sure we'll get into what all that means. And, um, you know, first I'd like to sort of set the table and give the listeners a basic rundown of what Civil Air Patrol is. And, um, you know, Colonel, if you can if you can start that off for us and maybe give a little bit about yourself and your history and uh, your history with the organization, that'd be great. And we'll just dive right in. And then later on, we'll focus in on your role with Civil Air Patrol in New Hampshire and how you guys interact with search and rescue and, and participate in some of the major missions that we've been on over the years. So take it away. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Well, um, so... I'll start first with Civil Air Patrol history because nobody wants to hear my history, really. But my <laughs> history is a subset of Civil Air Patrol's history. So um, so the 80th anniversary of Civil Air Patrol is this year. Uh, 2021 is uh, marks the 80th anniversary. And, and we were formed by lore, technically, not by actual official order, but by lore, we were formed on the 1st of December, 1941. The actual mm -hmm. order... Uh, from the Office of Civilian Defense that formed Civil Air Patrol was actually signed on the 8th of December. Now, they've been doing a lot of work prior to that. So um, at some point in time, somebody somewhere decided that the 1st of December was a nice round number, better than the 8th of December, particularly since Pearl Harbor Day was you know, the 7th. Mm -hmm. mm. So so this has been one of those things where uh, I, a good friend of mine is the uh, National Historian of Civil Air Patrol, and he you know, finds, uncovers all these documents. He's like, hey, look, there's the official order showing that we were incorporated or we were formed on the 8th of December. And everybody goes, ah, you know. <laughs> so, but we were formed by a number of uh, aviators. There was uh, Guy Gannett, uh, who was, the, of course, the, the newspaper magnate. And uh, um, mm -hmm. uh, there was uh, another newspaperman, uh, but last name of Beck, and I'm trying to think of his uh, first name, but... Uh, uh, and there was uh, Gil Rob Wilson, who was an aviation luminary at the time. Uh, and they had gone, a number of these gentlemen saw what was coming in Europe prior to 1941. And they saw how civil aviation had been 
cut down and reduced. And, you know, in these countries that were in conflict, they weren't flying. And they said, oh, no, we don't want to have that kind of thing happen. They saw the war clouds looming. And they said, mm-hmm. how can we mobilize these aviators to help in any kind of a coming conflict? So that's why there was the Civil Air Reserve that was, I believe, in New Jersey. And there was a um, uh, there was a whole bunch of different organizations. There was one out, I think Milton Knight's actual Civil Air Reserve was out in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was these disparate organizations around the country. And they, they basically got this idea to form all these organizations into one Civil Air Patrol under the Office of Civilian Defense uh, with Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. Who, uh, That's right. interestingly, he was na- he was named after an airport. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that I, that joke just popped right out of my mouth. I'm sorry. It's fantastic. <laughs> so, just to just ask a quick question. Obviously, their their scope as they were thinking about what was happening in Europe at the time was mm-hmm. a national initiative for protection of the homeland, or was it? What exactly was the scope? Well, initially it was, I, I, I'll i have to say it was a little self-preservation if you think about it. They just wanted to keep flying. You know, pilots, pilots like to fly. Um, and they mm-hmm. didn't want to see their, their ability to aviate restricted. You know, they didn't want to have their, they, they saw in Europe that in all these countries where the war had come to uh, from 1939 onwards, uh, they they saw what was going on. They said, no, 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 no. we want to keep flying. We want to, and if something comes and we're involved with it, we want to keep aviating. We want to help the United States. Mm-hmm. So that was the the impetus there. I mean, obviously, you know, hey, I want to still fly. You know, I, everybody else can ration their, their fat and stuff like that, but I want to keep flying. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it was only after, obviously, uh, Pearl Harbor and the United States entered into World War II that, Things like Coastal Patrol came up in early 1942. Um, we were having a huge problem. Uh, the Germans had op- uh, initiated Operation Drumbeat, which was their uh, unrestricted warfare against shipping in the North Atlantic. And mm, Shipping lanes, yeah. Right. And, and so the problem they were having was that uh, we weren't blacking out the East Coast yet, and ships were still going up and down the East Coast, and they were silhouetted. By these lights on, you know, Atlantic City and places like that, and uh, the Germans would surface in torpedo ships in the middle of the night because they were thinking, "Oh, hey, it's the dark. I can sneak around. Um, you know, the ships could we can get around without the U-boats seeing us." Well, the U-boats would go, <laughs> "You know, we can see everything." Mm-hmm. Um, so they started doing day convoys and that sort of thing. And again, there was still huge uh, a hit to the shipping. So the Navy was trying to come up with something and the Army was trying to come up with something. And the Civil Air Patrol said, hey, you know, we've got all all these pilots. Why don't we set up some coastal patrol bases? And they started very early in 1942. I want to say it was March or April of 1942. And they started setting up uh, coastal patrol bases all up and down the East Coast of the United States, Rehoboth, Maryland, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Some place in Delaware, New Jersey, near Atlantic City. Uh, we had coastal uh, coastal patrol base here in New Hampshire at uh, Portsmouth, uh, and they all the way down to Latana, Florida, and a little further south. And then there were a couple in the Gulf uh, of Mexico. So the idea was is that they could fly over the shipping, keep an eyeball open for any U boats, look for the periscope wakes, that kind of thing. Um, after a couple times where they had seen that, you know, they'd seen a. Uh, 
U-boat surface. There was a supposedly a U-boat that went to submerge and it got stuck on a sandbar and they kept calling for bombers and nobody showed up. And they were like, you know, they couldn't hurl anything but invective at them. You know, they were harsh <laughs> language. Um, so CAP started uh, equipping their aircraft with bombs and they literally rigged um, really wow. uh, bomb racks on the aircraft. And these are aircraft that were designed, they could barely haul two guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, now we're going to strap a hundred pound bomb on this That's thing. That's amazing. But they wanted, you know, they wanted the ability if, if there was another circumstance where they could scare off a German sub or it got, you know, one was stuck on the surface, they could potentially attack it. And we did attack a number of submarines, although um, you know, we didn't really sink any submarines. Uh, again, the history and the lore and the oral tradition talked about this when I was a cadet. Uh, you know, we always oh, we sank two submarines. That was the big thing. We sank two submarines. Well, later on, people figured out we really didn't sink two submarines. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, 1942, you know, the Civil Air Patrol Cadet Program was formed, and that was for uh, young men and women 15 to 18. And again, this part of this was preparing them to become aviators. Uh, we were doing screening for the, uh, the Army Air Corps. We were screening aviators, uh, giving them training and helping uh, send them up in aircraft to see if they had any kind of uh, 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 aptitude towards flying and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So that was that was one mission that we had. Um, the, the Coastal Patrol continued into 1943, and by that time, the Navy had finally gotten enough uh, uh, patrol aircraft. Uh, the Army Air Corps had enough aircraft that they could take over. Uh, but, you know, those initial months, the Navy really wasn't equipped. They were spread very thinly. They had, they had, they were trying to escort convoys and stuff like that. So we, we stepped in. After 1943, mm-hmm. we flew targets. We did liaison flying. We did Southern Border Patrol, um, search and rescue, and to some extent for air, aircraft that had, you know, gone missing in the mid, in Midwest or out in the West. Uh, there still was some co- uh, coastal patrol on the West Coast. Uh, because there was mm-hmm. a Japanese submarine threat out there. And I think at the end of the Coastal Patrol, we had flown something like 2 million miles. It was some oh, wow. really spectacular number. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, that was that involved people. And, you know, these people were all volunteers. They really weren't getting paid. They brought their airplanes to these bases. They got fed. They got put up in a chicken coop. Um, but they weren't really getting paid to do this. They were... They were doing it for love of country. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the war, uh, Civil Air Patrol was incorporated as a benevolent nonprofit corporation. That was in 1946. And in 1948, when the uh, Air Force was formed from the Army Air Corps, and the Army Air Corps was spun off into the Air Force, uh, legislation was signed. Sorry, that occurred in 1947, literally yesterday in 1947, the 18th of uh, September. And it was, took several more months uh, into May of 1948 before uh, the legislation was, was formed to incorporate Civil Air Patrol as that official civilian auxiliary of the Air Force. Right. I, um, I just want to make a note. So you guys are all volunteers, correct? 100%. We're, uh, we have a yep. paid staff at the national headquarters. There are people who are paid at the national headquarters, but everybody below the national headquarters level is a volunteer. As a matter of fact, okay. uh, this weekend we had our na- uh, our state conference here at the uh, National Guard facility in Pembroke, and uh, our national commander was here, and our national commander, just like me, is a volunteer. 
He travels all over the country. Mm -hmm. He goes to all kinds of wing and region and national conferences. And as a matter of fact, he flew from here down to um, D.C. He's going to the Air Force Association's uh, uh, conference down there this week. So he's a guy who's, again, just like me, he doesn't get paid. So Mm -hmm. he, he gets his travel covered. and That's about it. So after the war, you have all these uh, vets that come back. Um, your focus changes to national. Um, so from the 50s till today, what have you guys been up to for missions and uh, how's that evolved? Well, part of, it, part of our um, congressional mandate was that we were supposed to have three main missions. and I prefer to call those focus areas more than you know, so-called missions. Mm-hmm. Aerospace education of the general public was an important one. The The leaders of the Air Force saw that the public needed to be um, educated on air power and the, the need for aviation and air power. After the war, there was a lot of situations where people were like, oh, what do we need to keep an Air Force for? Why do we need all these airplanes that cost us so much money? You know, typical post-war drawdown situations. Mm-hmm. So. The Air Force was like, look, we need to educate our citizenry on why their air power is important. And I mean, we had gone from prop airliners or, you know, two-engine uh, DC-3s as airliners prior to the war. Now we're after the war and we've got constellations and things like that. And the first jets have come around and we haven't even gotten to jet airliners yet uh, and that sort of thing. But people still didn't understand aviation. Aviation was still in its relative infancy in, in you know late 1940s so the aerospace education focus area of civil air patrol was such that we were there to help educate the voters if you think about it uh, but the general public and let them know why it was important that we have an air force why it's important that you have an airport in your city why it's important that these people are flying and training and doing these things um, you know, air, just because the airplanes make noise doesn't mean they're bad. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, our second second mission, uh, of course, was the cadet program. Uh, that was already in a, in effect, but we were we expanded the cadet program. Uh, young men and women slightly slightly younger. We started taking uh, young men and women slightly younger in age, uh, and and that was again to make air-minded young men and women to help that aerospace education mission. And we were doing pilot training back then. Again, that was to help develop a pilot corps. And and there was a little more aviation focus to the program back in the late 1940s, early 1950s than even there is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the third mission uh, uh, was emergency services where we were tasked to help uh, the government, local communities uh, in times of emergency. So uh, search and rescue, of course, is one aspect of that. Uh, disaster relief, uh, any kind of flooding, communications. Of course, the threat of nuclear war at that time was was pretty big. So uh, we had uh, things where we were doing ready to do uh, uh, what they called RADEF at the time, radiological defense uh, and, and there's, I mean, we, we were set to do things like radio navigation aids in the 1950s. They were concerned about bombers coming up over the pole and using radio stations to guide themselves. So we were hmm. trained to go to air navigation facilities and shut them down. Interestingly hmm. enough, it when ordered by the FAA or at the time it wasn't the FAA, it was the CAA, I think. But, um, 
you know, that these kinds of things we, we were, that was a Homeland Defense thing that we were work, you know, ready to do. So throughout the 1950s, Civil Air Patrol membership peaked really, really, really high in the 19, early 1950s. We were at about 93,000 members in 1952 or 53, I believe it was. Throughout the 1950s, there was a Civil Air Patrol unit, I won't say on every corner, but in every little town in America, it seemed, there was probably a Civil Air Patrol unit. There was about 3,000 units across the country. Quite a few. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, Throughout the 1950s, uh, our, the Air Force realized that our cadets represented a great opportunity uh, when they constructed the Air Force Academy in the 1950s and the first first classes were started. Like 10% of the, uh, the class of the Air Force Academy was former CAP cadets. That's how many cadets we had in the country. How, how is it structured today? So all states, all 50 states? Sure, yeah. Um, so, so we have uh, eight regions across the country uh, and 52 what we call wings. So there's one in each state plus the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Roughly at this particular moment in time, we've got about 55 or 56,000 members. COVID-19 did a real number on us. Uh, I hate to say that. Um uh, partly because our cadet program is very participatory. So cadets, mm-hmm. you know, they it's a hands-on kind of thing. And you can only do so much hands-on via Zoom. Yeah. So that was, we lost a lot of cadets that way. Yeah, I believe it. it that makes complete sense. How many pl- aircraft are you flying throughout the nation? Uh, currently, we've got about 500 and we advertise the fleet as being about 550 aircraft and it fluctuates a little bit. We're actually down to about 540 aircraft at the moment, just because we sell some aircraft as they age out of the fleet. Uh, and then we bring new aircraft into the fleet. So at any one time, there's anywhere between about 540 and 550 uh, aircraft. We operate the largest fleet of single engine aircraft in the world, like single owned fleet, if you will. Yeah, no, that's a question. Are they privately owned by each member or are they within the organization? They're owned by Civil Air Patrol. It's, they're actually uh, purchased okay. and, and owned by CAP Incorporated. Uh, and and that those aircraft are, and they range in age from, we've got some fairly old aircraft, like, uh, for example, in Alaska, I think there's a couple of Cessna 185s on floats up there that are probably as old as I am. I hate to say that. <laughs> um, but, you know, an aircraft is only as young as it looks or old, as old as it looks. Um, so with a well-maintained aircraft, uh, it will last a good long time. And uh, mm-hmm. most of our aircraft in the fleet are much newer. Uh, in the early 2000s, when Cessna restarted their single-engine uh, uh, production line, in the late 1990s, I believe that was, sorry, uh, we started getting aircraft, new aircraft again. Uh, in the mid to early mid to late 2000s there, uh, we started getting glass cockpit aircraft. Uh, all of the light single-engine aircraft that Cessna makes now are uh, what they call G1000 glass cockpit. They have uh, uh, two display screens in them, and they're technologically advanced aircraft. So every one of the aircraft that we acquire now are TAA aircraft. We stopped at the 50s, but if we can cover technologically what happened with Civil Air Patrol from, say, the 2000s to current, that would be great. Because, um, you know, with search and rescue, so much depends on infrared and uh, cell phone forensics and all these things. Maybe we could speak about how the technology progressed. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Interestingly, in about early 1970s, there was a big search uh, for a uh, congressman that had gone missing up in Alaska. And everybody was all horrified about this. Um, and, the, you know, oh, how could he go missing? You know, we can't find him, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Hale Boggs, I believe his name was. And uh, so Congress passed a law that all aircraft had to be equipped with an emergency locator transmitter by 1973. Uh, so that was on a frequency 121.5, which if anybody's an aviator, they'll know that's what's also called the guard frequency, which is a frequency that all aircraft monitor and are able to transmit on. Um, so mm-hmm. 121.5 was the, the types of, uh, ELTs that we have emergency locator transmitters. And though we were equipped to look for those both from the air and on the ground. Now, subsequently that technology has been overtaken considerably in the early 2000s i want to say it was um let me double check my notes because i did look uh and see the yeah the the in the early 2000s they started the move to the 406 megahertz beacons uh 406 we Mm -hmm. call those so 406 beacons elts plbs and epurbs which are the ones that are on boats um they became mandated uh 121.5 that that frequency was still there was homing on that we had satellites that were going around the the earth that would uh home in on the these signals so if a satellite was going around and and an aircraft crashed under the 121.5 megahertz beacons that satellite was overhead approximately once every 90 minutes so if you crashed at the top of the hour and the satellite had just gone by, it was going to be at least another 90 minutes before somebody heard that signal. And they mm-hmm. waited for another second pass to ensure that, you know, it was a legit signal. It wasn't just a, somebody activated their beacon to test it or something like that. So you were looking at like probably close to, or, or more than three hours between a crash to SAR forces being even alerted to start rolling. Now, with the new 406 megahertz beacons, they have the receivers for those on geostationary satellites, which don't orbit the, they, they orbit the Earth, but they they move at the same speed as the Earth does. So they appear to hover over the Earth, stationary. right? They're, they're stationary in the sky. So they can see the entire surface of the Earth from their position on well, the, the one side of the Earth or the other side of the Earth. So if a 406 megahertz beacon goes off now, they know it within seconds. Uh, okay, so just to just to inform the listeners, four hundred six, as we had discussed, that megahertz is uh, embedded into your personal locator beacon. If you're mm-hmm, a hiker, mm-hmm. I think like uh, the Rescue Link, uh, which I use actually, is that same frequency. Correct. Correct. Yeah, the Rescue Link yeah. uh, PLB is particularly if you have the GPS equipped one and. I don't want to get super technical for you, but some of the beacons, if they're GPS equipped, they actually every 51 seconds, I believe it is, they send a data burst along with their signal that says, hey, here's the position of this beacon. So it's Uh, pretty accurate, too. mm, Let's talk about that for a second. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm interested in this. Yeah, this is a good uh, topic. In particular, like, you know, is there a difference between sort of flat ground and, and mountainous regions? So g- g- share your knowledge and your, your views on this. Sure, Mike. So I'm not uh, a super expert on this by any means. There's a gentleman in my wing 
um, who is a former wing commander, and he's out in the Midwest right now flying Air Force pilots and training them. But he was involved in, in I'm sure you guys are familiar with the hike of Kate Masterova. Master, Masterova, I've got the book right here, yes. Where You'll Find right. Me by Ty Gagne. Um, <laughs> I'm prepared. I have it on there my shelf. Um, it it's should be, absolutely. Reading. So the, the plotting yeah. of the signals from her PLB she was in basically one location. I mean, it, you know, she touched off that beacon and moved around some, but for a long period of time, she was in her, in one location. Her beacon was in one location. If you look at the plot mm. of all of the signals, there was a lot of reflectivity coming off. They, they, they didn't exactly know where that, that beacon was. There was, there were literally GPS positions coming from the other side of uh, Mount Adams and Mount Madison on the Route 2 Randolph side. There was at least one or two hits plotted over there. Um, so while GPS can be accurate, it depends on a lot of factors. If you put that GPS beacon in your rucksack and now your rucksack is laying upside down on the snowy ground. Which may have been the case right, with Kate. Right, right. So Possibly. Possibly, right. Um so for but the, the 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 good thing is the good thing is the 406 megahertz beacons can bring rescue forces to you so much faster. Now I'll I'll call it bad news, and I only say it's bad news for us. It re, has reduced the incidence of SAR for us. It, we years ago we were flying twenty thousand hours a year in search and rescue. Now mm. we're flying actual search and rescue, I should say. Now I think we're flying several hundred, several hundred hours, you know, flying hours a year. Now that's not the only mm -hmm. technology that we use though. So we've got airborne electronic search that we do with the aircraft that have direction finders built into them that can decode the, the burst signal. They can also uh, search for the 121.5, the low power homing signal. But mm -hmm. another technology that we also have is we have a group of people in the organization at the national level. It's a cellular forensics team. And that cellular forensics team, they have the ability, somebody says, okay, hey, Darren Ninnis is lost in the White Mountains. He's called us, on, he called 911 and said he's on a trail and he has no idea where he is. By the way, never going to happen because I don't hike that much. I'm a terrible hiker. I hate to say it. <laughs> I've got only like six of the 4,000 footers accomplished. Um, <laughs> but my point there is, is that if I call, they can, they could figure out with my phone number, they can figure out what cell towers my phone was seen on and what parts of the cell towers. So then they can start triangulating mm -hmm. where my potential location is with a sufficient amount of signals. They can drive that, area of certainty or uh, possibility down to, and I'm going to ballpark this, uh, pr probably a 300 or 500 meter diameter circle, which of course, as you guys know, for the hiking, you know. Well, think of a, a grid search. I mean, that's not too overwhelming. No. You could certainly scan that. Right, right, right. So, so we can now narrow it down, and um, that that's one aspect. There's also a team called the National Radar Analysis Team. They are able to get uh, FAA data from you know the radar tracks, and they can see, oh, hey, here's the airplane, here's the airplane, oh, 
Here's not the airplane, you know, and okay, so they can then figure out the aircraft's last known <laughs> position and integrate that with the cell data, potentially 406 megahertz beacon information, all that kind of thing. Um, the other thing is, is that, of course, aircraft have ADSB, uh, uh, Automatic Surveillance Dependent Broadcast System, um, which is basically, I won't call it LOJAC, but it's it's a system that broadcasts the aircraft's position every 10 or 30 seconds. I forget what it exactly is. And that allows other aircraft around them who are ADSB equipped to see that aircraft. Well, if you look on FlightAware or uh, Flight Radar 24 or ADSB Exchange, you can see the position of aircraft. You watch airliners, you see your buddy flying from Florida up here, whatever it is. Yeah. Same technology. So mm -hmm. we can use that technology to help narrow down the search area as well. Let's tie this into how you guys operate in New Hampshire, and um, you had mentioned that, let's see, there were nine squadrons throughout the mm -hmm. state. Um, how many members in New Hampshire? In New Hampshire, we've got about 500 right now. We had, uh, pre-COVID, we were about 600 members, uh, so you can tell we, we lost quite a bit. Yeah. Um, most Mostly cadets, unfortunately. I think right now, I should have looked at the numbers, but we've got about between 30 and 35 mission pilots, which are people who can fly our aircraft on search and rescue missions or our other missions that we do, disaster relief, aerial photography, that sort of thing. And your planes are equipped with all the same equipment? Yeah, um, most of the airplanes are, I should say. There's um, One of our aircraft, we the newest aircraft we got does not have a direction finder in it, actually. It's not equipped for that. Um but most of our aircraft do have the direction finders in them. Uh, they're equipped with photo windows so we can uh, do aerial photography out the window of the aircraft. Uh, they have a full communication suite in them. And I think all but one of our aircraft are equipped for what we call hybrid, which is where we can take a, a, a repeater, a radio repeater, and put it in the back of the aircraft, right. fly high up over the White Mountains, and somebody on one side of the White Mountains using that airborne repeater can talk to somebody on the other side of the White Mountains using a VHF radio. <laughs> Sounds beautiful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Communication's always so tricky in search and rescue. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So what, what is your relationship with the agencies in New Hampshire? How are you dispatched? Who do you talk with? Um, who calls you? Okay, so we get that alert notification, and we will be alerted by... Uh, uh, Tyndall Air Force Base. And then um, now if it's something else, it's a missing hiker, um, the supporting, the the requesting agency will call the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center and request us if they, if they need our assistance. So they need air cover. Uh, if they want the cellular forensics people to, to do their magic, yeah. uh, radar analysis, something like that. Gotcha. So, um, and that's how we get alerted. We, again, we mostly get alerted via the uh, Rescue Coordination Center for, for search-type missions. Now, other missions that we might do, like disaster relief or something like that, we're also part of the emergency support functions at the EOC, uh, and we'll get alerted that way. Gotcha. So you're dealing with fish and game at times? Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Wh whatever the requesting agency is, they would call down to um, AFRCC, and they would ask, hey, can we get uh, Civil Air Patrol to do a search uh, you know, here's, here's our situation. Here's what we're, we're missing or here's what we need. And that's what they would, they would get. Okay. Now, um, 
bef- I, I do want to ask about what your your process is, and then ask Jack to tell us what his process was to become a member of Civil Air Patrol. But maybe you could just touch upon a couple really prominent or uh, memorable missions here in the Whites. Sure. Well, obviously, we we talked about uh, Kate Mastrosova. Duck on it. I know how to say her last name, Mastrosova. Mm. There we go. I have the book right in front of me. I should be able to read that name, Kate Mastrosova. Um, and that was a, a big deal because at the time she went missing, I believe it was in February, um, and the crew that went to go fly up there, the winds were over 100 miles an hour. Okay, so they actually tolerated that weather. Well, so, you know, Mount Washington is what, 6,288 feet, if I recall correctly? Um we flew, at, the winds at the top of Mount Washington were over 100 miles an hour. They added another 3,000 feet to that and another 1,000 feet to that just for some buffer. And when they were flying into the wind, they were going across the ground at like <laughs> five miles an hour. And they would turn the other direction. They were doing 205 miles an hour. <laughs> wow. So, you know, some, yeah, Hellish. it was bumpy. They were going up and down, up and down 50 or 100 feet at a clip. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wanted to make sure they had that clearance because they didn't know how turbulent it was going to be. But, you know, it was February, so they even had to defrost the hangar doors to get the aircraft out. That was, that was cold weather. a real treat, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and there was that uh, hiker up um, on the uh, Franconia Ridge, yep. Mount Lincoln, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Um, he was lost. He built himself a snow cave. Um, and we went up and flew up and down uh, the, the, uh, the ridge up there quite a bit looking now the hard part of that was it was still snow and he had built a snow cave and the only thing you're going to basically see is the top of his head mm-hmm. so from a thousand feet above ground level which is as low as we're going to fly you you, you that's like looking for a needle in a haystack i have a i have a memory of that that was before i was on search and rescue and i was doing a pemi loop that day and i remember getting a glimpse from uh Gio or the bond section looking towards that ridge and i i'm assuming it was your planes flying looping mm-hmm. around owl's head which is right in the center of the pemi loop and it was just amazing it gave a perspective about how big the mountains were right. these little planes just doing loops back round and round it was amazing to see and i knew that's what you guys are doing but and i this is well before i was in search and rescue but i'm like they're looking for somebody something's going on and sure enough, as we made our way around, people were saying, "Hey, did you see this guy? This person's missing, and this yeah. and that." So yeah, and that was a, and that was a big deal. So they, what happened was they got uh, the cell phone forensics team involved because he had called a couple times on his phone. He's like, you know, hey, look, I'm up here and and I don't know where I'm at, and he was in a rock fall area of some sort. I'm not 100 percent sure. I, again, I wasn't on that mission, but basically mm-hmm. they uh, they gave the National Guard a set of coordinates and they said he's somewhere within this 300 meter diameter circle or 300 meter radius so I'll be and they flew up there and it was getting dark the way the story goes and again this is <laughs> there's a lot of oral tradition so sometimes you, the, the way the story gets sure. passed along um, but it's my understanding of the National Guard helicopter flew up there and they were like looking, looking, looking like, hey, we're going to make one last loop, but it's getting dark. And he was flashing his red headlamp and they were like, hey, look, there's a red light down there. And, um, so they, you know, they, they went down and they got him and he was pretty sure. Sh- I've, I've heard the same. It was a glint yep. of something. And he said he was pretty sure he wasn't going to make it another night. Do you, 
Do you have any advice for people? Um, I guess if you did, if you did find yourself in a situation where you needed a rescue and you were sort of on your own, is there any advice you have from the perspective of somebody that's flown on these missions to 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 make yourself get spotted more easily by the planes? Well, it, it, having brightly colored items is good having something like a, a signal panel not that you, everybody would carry a signal panel but if you had a you know a, a three foot by three foot square of brightly colored cloth for example that doesn't weigh much you could lay that out you could stamp out if you're in snow you could stamp out um uh, a, a signal uh, an x or something like that um Obviously, I, I you know we, we know that I've read your uh, website and the, the stories of all the people that seem to wind up on mountains without headlamps. Uh, because you know, I started hiking at four o'clock in the afternoon on a winter day, and hmm, it got dark. Um, having a headlamp, a flashlight. Uh, I personally, in my aircrew survival gear, I carry a strobe light. I have a, a aircrew survival strobe, so if uh, you know that doesn't look like anything. It, that's it's a very unnatural looking thing in the in the mountains or in the terrain. I'm not saying everybody should have a strobe light, but um, the other thing is, is if you're if you're you see an aircraft, if you see a helicopter and you know you're in a lost situation, um, when you shine your light at the aircraft, make sure you strobe that light. Make sure you move it side to side so that it's not just one continuous light because that doesn't. It's not nearly as obvious. So the eye will pick up. The, the occultation occultation is that the right word? It, it the interruption of, interruption of the light there we go that's <laughs> I'm making up words okay um, <laughs> and that's probably best and I mean you could even do it with a signal mirror if you've ever used a signal mirror uh, a sig it, but a signal mirror depends on the sun if it's there's no sun signal mirror doesn't work so how heavy heavy are these uh, strobes that you're carrying? Well, I don't know. Strobe weighs about, uh, it's got two AA batteries in it and, um, and it's about the size of a, fairly small. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not a big thing. It's, uh, I wouldn't say it's like the size of a cell phone, but it's probably the size of one of those battery packs that you charge your cell phone from. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. That would be handy mm -hmm. even for searches, you know, if, if yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I, I actually have another question that's sort of a little off topic from search and rescue, but just more in general, sort of the trend, future trends in aviation, because I see more and more, obviously drones have been the big change for the mm -hmm. last 10 years or so, and I'm sure that there's, you know, some some skill in drone flight within, within Civil Air Patrol, so I was curious if you could talk about that, and then I also was curious... As a kid growing up, we all watched the Jetsons, and I was expecting by this time I'd be flying around in my own aircraft. That hasn't happened yet, but I do feel like I'm seeing more and more of these sort of homemade videos of people using actual drone technology at the human level. Do you think that we're within like a 20-year window of, of personal aircraft? I, I guess just you know those two themes, I would be curious to get your thoughts around. Sure. Well, drones, first and foremost, in Civil Air Patrol, we're building a drone capability. Uh, we're a little bit behind the power curve on that, actually. I think a lot of people said, oh, no, manned aircraft is the way to go. And then they realized, hey, you know, we got to get on the drone bandwagon. But the other side of the coin with a drone is um, most drones are fairly small. That's why they call it SUAS, small unmanned aerial systems. Um, mm -hmm. And those aircraft, they don't have a ton of endurance. If you want to follow or fly a, a flight route you know you have a missing aircraft and its last known 
route of flight was here and it's 150 nautical miles long, you're not going to fly that with a drone. Not with a, not with an existing small unmanned aerial systems drone, and probably not with a drone that's going to operate in the airspace system normally. You know, you're not going to fly a Predator or something like that, or a, a Reaper drone. Um, but we're building these drone capabilities partly for disaster relief pur- purposes because these drones can carry things like um, uh, lidar, light, like light based radar and they can do things where they can fly over an area and they can look at a debris pile and they can determine like there was a house here and now it's a debris pile or now there's a debris pile in the middle of this this uh area and it's you know 30 feet in diameter by 15 feet high and then uh you know two weeks later when we fly over that area that's now you know 10 feet in diameter and five feet high. Okay. They know the progression of the, the uh, recovery efforts from that kind of thing. So our SUAS technologies, we're building the teams in every state. Uh, our first drone pilot just got qualified about two weeks ago. He's actually up in Whitefield mm. uh, at the Whitefield squadron. And uh, we're, we're starting to build that capability out. But again, that right now SUAS is a smaller search function if you we send somebody out and it's like hey there could be a a a lady with alzheimer's walking out in these woods someplace we could send that out that's a different search paradigm than that that you would use an airplane with mostly but drones are a thing and they're they're coming and i mean there's in the next i would say in the next five or six years drones are really going to be huge in this space and and it, once we figure out how to make drones work within the airspace system and able to fly and be compatible with manned aircraft and not be a hazard, that's when you're going to start seeing uh, the the fixed wing drones and that sort of thing, a longer duration uh, uh, unmanned aircraft actually working. Now, to your to your point about Elroy, I'm going to call you Elroy now, Jetson. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, to your point about aviation and you know personal aviation and this sort of thing with drone technology, it's all nifty stuff. If you look at anything from uh, Oshkosh 2021, there's uh, a couple of different of these uh, unmanned air or, or manned aerial aircraft that are basically they look like big drones. You know, it's like it's not a quadcopter; it's a 27 copter or something like that. And those things are now what they're working towards now is autonomy. And that's the big thing is that having that aircraft able to operate in the airspace system in such a way that it can be autonomous. You don't have to be a pilot. Things shows up to you. It's like an Uber. You get in. It's like, well, there's no pilot here. Off you go, you know, and it flies you from the, the 34th street heliport to LaGuardia or something like that. I I mean, I don't know exactly the, the use case. It would be pretty spendy. I would think, but that kind of thing is is coming. And I would say in the next, you're going to see that kind of thing in the next 10 or 15 years as they're able to figure out how to integrate autonomy into the airspace system. I have a question that builds upon Mike's question. Oh, geez. Are you familiar with Gravity gravity Industries? Gravity Industries. Uh, this sounds like a... This is... No. This guy, well, it's a, it's a one man because I think he's the only one strong enough to do it, but <laughs> he's built a jet suit. Oh, yes. And... I mean, it's it's really impressive to watch it, but you can tell that they're desperately trying to introduce potential applications. That's what that's their whole big PR thing on YouTube. But it's Gravity Industries, uh-huh. 
the dude the dude has four turbines on his yes. his hands and there's a jetpack. Yeah. Um, I wonder. I just wonder what your thought is on that. So it looks very dangerous. First of all, I, I well, I didn't I didn't cover my other. See, I didn't I didn't talk about my background very much uh, at all because I got all completely immersed in CAP history, as I often do. Mm. Um, but one of the my my other part time job is I'm a skydiving instructor. Oh wow! And so I can I can tell you that I look at a jet suit at like like a suit like a jet pack kind of thing, and I go, mm. <laughs> now there's the jet man. You guys have probably seen uh, Eves Rossi, who's the guy. He's got the the Delta wing jet that's got these two little jet motors underneath. Sure. Cool. That looks like fun. That, that jet suit thing with the you know oh here let me just grab this thing that looks like I'm holding four jet engines and what. <laughs> <laughs> what you know i'm like I, now i just saw a video a couple months ago where these guys were assaulting they, they were like royal marines and they were on like these these boats following a destroyer and they were practicing like boarding techniques using that kind of a suit you're right right it looked really nifty and i'm, I'm like it looks really nifty but the tactical like okay Here's what we're going to use. We're going to assault this ship that's that's been taken over by deaf terrorists who can't see anything. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> this thing's got to like it's got to be the loudest thing around, right? So, yeah, well, that's actually a good point because the videos never put the audio up. <laughs> I in, in my in my that's a dead giveaway. In my military life, I was a um, uh, I was a helicopter mechanic in the army, and you know helicopters are loud. Turbine engines are loud. And <laughs> let me tell you, you know, somebody goes, oh, we got this turbine thing. We're going to sneak up on people. I'm like, you're not sneaking up on nothing. <laughs> not to mention, I mean, if you stop, if that, if we tried to do that, that jet suit with the, with the hand things, we're hikers. We have no upper body strength. It would rip our arms off <laughs> before we went two feet. <laughs> There'd be two arms flying through the sky in different directions. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, so uh, maybe I might get sort of a Jetsons experience where it's like uh, I'm not controlling it, but it sounds like we're still pretty far off in the future. Well, and I mean, you're you're almost I won't say you're almost more likely to go to space, but considering an interesting aside, um, you know, we just had the inspiration for a mission on a a SpaceX Dragon capsule, the the four civilian astronauts that just finished their mission. you, you know that was all autonomous. For example, you know they 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 did very little interaction with the flying of the spacecraft. But uh, interestingly enough, the pilot on that uh, uh, spacecraft, uh, Dr. Cyan Proctor, she was a Civil Air Patrol member. She's a major from uh, Arizona Wing. Oh. It's very cool. Civil yeah. Air Patrol in space, baby. Did that? We're everywhere. <laughs> nice, nice. So, Snoop, we should get into how Jack got involved here, just in case, because we probably yeah. want to use this for a little bit of recruiting, too, to, uh, to maybe we'll attract somebody that might be interested in joining. Yeah. Mike, why don't you do that with Jack and then lead into the T-25, and then we're going to come back and do a, a wrap-up with um, the 60th anniversary of uh, an interesting story. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, so Jack, you have joined us here. So, we've, we, uh, Stomp and I know you through hiking, and you recently yep. joined Civil Air Patrol. So, can you talk a little bit about like the, um, the membership application process and how you got involved? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, you guys know I was on Search and Rescue before, and uh, I happened to be, I saw a commercial for Civil Air Patrol, and I always thought Civil Air Patrol was you had to be a pilot. 
But in this commercial, it showed that you did not have to be a pilot. So I thought, that sounds pretty interesting. And I love to fly. And I thought maybe I could somehow get in, in an airplane without being a pilot. So I, uh, I emailed the local squadron in Concord and immediately got a, a response from the uh, Captain uh, Ben Rossi, who's the commander there at that squadron. And uh, he told me they were just coming back from their annual, uh, it's, it's called encampment, Darren? Is that what it's called? Encampment? Yep. So he's like, well, we can't have you come visit us this week because we just got back. It's going to be a little busy. But in that time, I had a virtual meeting with him and with Darren and it gave me a little background and whatnot and what I could expect. And then they had me come out and visit. And I was handed an application. Basically, it was just fill out the application, get my fingerprints done, send it in with $46. $46. Is that what it is now? 46 Yeah, $46 for your annual fees. Annual, okay. And I, I did it with uh, priority mail <laughs> because I'm one of those people. I got to have it trackable. And uh, I think I got it back the fastest <laughs> that anybody in Concord has ever been approved, to be honest with you. It was like almost immediately, like two days later. So it was that fast. And once I got that, I got a uh, .gov email address. I got access to the website and uh, access to all the training. Now, in order to progress, you have to, there's two levels of training, level level one and level two, you have to go through before you even get a, uh, a rank because it's based on military. So there's ranks. Yep. And uh, and that's what I've been doing now. And I'm almost done with level two. And I think they give you six months to do that, but I've done it in like five weeks because <laughs> I'm one of those people that, you know, if I want to do something, I'm going to go dive right in, hit in and, and do everything I can do uh, to be a contributing member. So that's fantastic. I'm hoping that very soon I'll be able to do the emergency services training and then I can start taking part in any mission. So it's that easy. And yeah, so that's your goal basically is to get, get involved in, in some of the, the rescue missions that they're involved in. Yeah. I hope to be a aerial photographer at some point, but I'm going to have to become a mission scanner first, which is the guy that's in the backseat of the plane looking for a down aircraft and whatnot. And then I don't think I'm required to be a mission observer who sits in the front seat and he does the navigation and, and radios, I believe is what he does. Is that correct, Darren? Yeah, it is. So the, yeah, yeah the, 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 normally in a crew, you've got the mission pilot. That's the, the I call him the organic con, uh, flight control manipulator. Um, <laughs> organic flight control. My pilot friends are all like, "Stop saying that." Uh, I'm not. A pi- I'm honestly not a pilot. I'm a mission observer. But I started in the back seat on the left side of the aircraft, mm-hmm. looking out. And when you have a three-person crew, the mission uh, pilot is in the front left seat as the pilot in command of the aircraft, and his job is to obviously operate in the airspace system, keep the aircraft safe, fly the aircraft, uh, keep from colliding with things, etc. The guy in the right seat is the mission observer, and he's like the mission quarterback. The he he's yeah. the planner, the the director. He's telling him, okay, here's here's our search pattern. He's going to put the search pattern into the G one thousand system, whatever. In the back seat, you'll either have a mission scanner. He's the other set of eyeballs that's looking out the left side of the aircraft because the pilot's got to fly the plane, and or. You may have an uh, aerial photographer in the back seat, so he's taking the pictures out of the, the camera window on the left side of the plane. Depends on the mission, what you're doing. And do you have um, any particular – I'm a recruiter by trade, so I think about this, but like, is there any particular skills that you are targeting at this point that you really need, uh, need focus on, or can anybody join? Uh, by and large – and I'm a recruiter too. I was the National Recruiting and Retention Manager for CAP for five years. Um, before I became the wing commander here. But um, basically, you know, we take people from all walks of life. Uh, there's, you know, we, we even took Jack. Oh, wait, no, that's not what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, How desperate they are. <laughs> completely kidding there. Um, although it was funny because we talked to Jack and he, I, I see Jack and he's like talking to me. He's like, hey, and I'm like, 
are you the guy that was on the Zoom thing? <laughs> I'm like, you're already a member? How did that even happen? I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute, that was like, um, that was like four days ago, or I don't remember. It was, it was pretty funny, and I was like, I'm, and he's like acting like he knows me. He, he acts like he knows me. I'm like, I don't know you. you know? Actually, it was pretty funny, but um, I, I kid a little bit. But um, so the, you know, we can take. We have members from all walks of life, all skill sets. But units, local units, which is where everybody joins initially, um, you know, they need all manner of volunteers. We're all unpaid professionals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have people who count the uniforms. We have people who run the finances of the unit. We have people who conduct the training for the cadets. Um, you know, we're always looking for people who are former military who know their left from their right, which is important because if you're going to teach somebody how to march, knowing your left from your right is kind of, you know, that's a, that's a big important skill. And then uh, um, saluting is another big important skill. But, um, you know, that kind of thing. And then, you know, people who are interested, some, sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll take a job with the unit and it's like you're the personnel officer. Oh, boy, that's exciting. Having been a personnel officer, I can tell you that's incredibly exciting. Not, but it's a necessary function because you got to keep track of, you know, who's been in how long and what awards they're due and, um, you know, their progression, particularly the cadets. The cadets move up in the, in the cadet program. We have people who conduct and manage the training. Uh, emergency services. A local unit might have an emergency services officer who's the person who is the local point of contact for training, uh, getting people checked out, uh, going through the FEMA courses that they need to go through. Uh, you might have communicators, people who are into radio, uh, radio telecommunications. We have a full setup at our, our state headquarters here in Concord that's uh, HF, VHF. Uh, we're on the state's uh, mutual link system. Uh, so there's all kinds of things for a unit, and every unit varies a little bit. You know, a, a unit in Concord might have a need for something that the unit in Monadnock uh, might not need, or the unit in Lebanon has something that the unit in Concord doesn't have. So it's it all varies a little bit. Obviously, pilots is one aspect. People who are willing to fly around in the backseat of the airplane is another aspect. Heck, one of the big things that we have a hard time with is people knowing that our organization exists. You know, um, my landlord, uh, one day I was walking out of the house here right after I moved in and I was in my uniform and he looks at me, he goes, Hey, what's with the uniform? I said, mm -hmm. Oh, I'm in civil air patrol. He goes, Oh, that's still around. I was like, Oh <laughs> man. And, but, but the truth is, is that we do a, not a, a super good job of talking to people about what we do. Mm -hmm. And so public affairs officers, for example, are really a necessary component of every unit helping run their website take photographs of people while they're doing things, write up a story about, Hey, you know, we participated in this training exercise or this cadet got a promotion or whatever it is and get it in the local paper. You know, that awareness aspect is huge. You know, if somebody's into marketing or they're in social media or photography, even not aerial photography, but if they know how to take a picture. We're having an open house in Concord in October. So, you know, I encourage anybody who wants to learn more about Civil Air Patrol to come see us. I believe it's October 14th. Yep. You know, because you're the, your podcast listener, listenerhood, that's not the right word. Um, uh, listener, I was going to say listenership, and I almost said viewership, and that ain't right either. But um, 
your your listenership is potentially all over the country mm-hmm. uh go com is our national oh, website there you go. Yes. Yep. and Thank there's you. a unit locator um about midway down the page there's a you put your zip code in you can find your nearest unit and uh if you're if you're interested you can reach out to that nearby unit and speaking as the recruiting and retention manager i can or previous recruiting and retention manager i can tell you that um you know, sometimes you'll reach out to a unit and you might not get a response back right quick. So, um, you know, be persistent. That's uh, that's the best thing I can tell somebody. Jack was persistent. <laughs> yes. Got it. Well, we'll, we'll uh, make sure that we include all the information in the show notes, and hopefully this will help get the word out a little bit and pick up some new membership. But, Jack, with your with your onboarding, so you, you went through it pretty quickly, but in general, yes. what um, anybody that's sort of interested in signing up and going through the onboarding process, can you talk a little bit about what they should expect? Well, it's generally not – terribly long i believe uh you know it's like what i said you you get an application you you know you put in some pertinent information on that you get your fingerprints done you send it in with your 46 dollars you know they process you uh, your your fingerprints through the it's the fbi i believe their database as well uh and then once everything comes back clean that's when they notify you so it may not be as quick as for me i mean i think i sent it in on friday and i was like that, that following Tuesday, I was approved, which is not, you know, not uh, common, to be honest. Normally, it's probably a week or two, maybe, I think, but it's not a difficult process at all. Um, there's so many opportunities to learn stuff, and I'm just starting to scratch the surface. I mean, it's it's almost to the point where I feel like a kid in a candy store. This, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to learn this. And you, know, you have to kind of focus yourself a little bit just to, you know, you can learn many things. You don't have to pigeonhole yourself into one specialty track. Uh, I have not been... Um, assigned any duties at the squadron yet. Um, I think they just give me a little grace period to get the training done. But eventually I may be, you know, the, you know, public affairs person or, or whatever, or the personnel guy or whatever they need. That's, you know, I'm just going to do whatever the squadron needs. So Awesome. Awesome. So I did want to get into a little bit of your, your hiking background. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you, and I want to talk about the terrifying 25 list uh, <laughs> primarily with you, but can you give a little bit of background about um, hiking, how, how long you've been doing it and, yeah. and your experience? I started about 14 years ago, I think, um, okay. more or less. And like a lot of people, I was focused only on the 48s because uh, you know, why mess with the 20, you know, the smaller ones, I want the big mountains and, and it was kind of a, I don't know. Looking back, I think I, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I had spread them out a little bit more and, mm-hmm. and not try to rush through the list. Um, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. That's what I did. And you know, I've been, like I said, I've been hiking almost every weekend, year round, you know, for about 14 years. And do you, you still hike the same amount as you, you, you it hasn't tailored off for you at all? No, at this point? not at all. Um, I now have my wife hiking with me and she doesn't like to do some of the bigger mountains. So we're much more mm-hmm. local and some of the smaller things. But, uh, you know, at this point in my hiking career, I don't follow a list anymore. I just hike. That's all I do. All I try right. to find things that she might like, and we just go out and have fun. And that's you know mm-hmm. that's where it is for me now. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, though, when I saw the Civil Air Patrol, I saw a part that talked about search and rescue. And having that background, I thought, oh, this is a great fit for me. I'll be able to hit the ground running. Well, then in that virtual meeting with Darren, he told me that, no, we don't really have a search and rescue team. Well, so yeah, I, I mean, l- let me be realistic. Yeah, I'll be realistic about that. Our, our capability in other states... In other states, you know, there is a ground surge capability that we do. I mean, I moved here from the Midwest. I was a ground team leader. I had uh, uh, multiple uh, distress and non-distress search and rescue uh, missions under my belt. But here in the Granite State, I mean, like a you guys feet have on the ground called mountains. 
uh, I came from the <laughs> flatland and, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, that looks like it's pretty easy. No big deal. Oh, was I quickly disabused of that, you know. <laughs> and so, I mean, here in the Granite State in particular, you know, you've got the specialized SAR teams. We don't have the ability to train or equip ourselves really to the same level as the specialized SAR teams. It's just a fact. You know, the cadets have, they've got their training program and, you know, all of them are between the ages of 12 and 18. So, you know, we concentrate on that air aspect. Really, that's that's where our bread and butter is, is, is flying the airplanes, communications, search and rescue, PLBs, photography, and that sort of thing. Very cool. Now, Jack, with your one, one question I did want to ask you is because I, I need some advice from you because I'm sort of similar to you. I've been doing it for about eight years now and I've been hiking most of the lists, but my wife does join me occasionally, but I, I got to get her out more. Can you just give me your view of like, how do you, not even your, your spouse, but if you have somebody that is somewhat interested, but they're not as passionate as you are, like what are some strategies that you use to, to keep it fun and to get, get folks out there? Um, with my wife, the very first hike we went on, I, I led the hike and I thought I was going slow. I was not. Yeah. <laughs> she got to the point where she was almost throwing up from the effort and, and that did not work out and it did not make her happy about hiking and you know, it did not make her want to come back. So I would suggest let them lead the hike, let them go at their pace and as slow as it may be, or as fast as it may be, it doesn't matter. Let them do it. It gives them a sense of accomplishment as well. But also for me, I bribe my wife. I make her coffee at the top. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, I get that coffee going. And that's, you know, whenever she's, you know, we're going up something steep. I'm like, don't worry, honey, you know, there's coffee coming. So that gets her over that hump and, and gets her up to the top. But yeah, we make it fun. And we, you know, we, we just chat and, you know, just enjoy the day. Cool. Now, are you, don't make it a pacing list or anything like that. Just make it cool. Fun. Now, are you, are you doing instant coffee or are you breaking out the French press? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I actually have a friend's purse in my uh, jet boil, but I don't use that. I used it once before the very first time, and it kind of blew up on me. It didn't work so good. But I use the Folgers coffee bags, which look oh, yeah, like tea yeah, bags, yeah. and it so and it actually tastes pretty good. So nice. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try to bribe my wife with something. I'll have to figure it out. Yeah. Or yeah. snacks. I mean, you know, like uh, banana bread or whatever she likes. You know, make it fun. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. And then as far as the terrifying 25, so I think I first became aware of you because I started to hike that list. So for, for the audience's mm -hmm. sake, I think we did an, a dedicated episode on episode five about the terrifying 25, but this is a list of the 25 most difficult trails in the white mountains. And I think I became aware of you for just being on that that Facebook group to get it. Yeah. A lot of times what you'll do, people will research hikes and try to figure out like, okay, what should I expect from this? And you would put in a lot of comments and different hikes and things like that. So can yep. you talk a little bit about what what's most appealing to you about the terrifying 25? Because that, that's, I know you said you're not into lists anymore, but it uh, it mm -hmm. seems like you continue to kind of go back to those. And you've, you've completed like two or three rounds of this list? Uh, about two and a half. half. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did the first list was not, it was with you know, other people, but the second time I did it was all solo. And what I like about it is the fact that some of them are terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you get your heart rate going and, uh, you know, it requires a little bit of skill, a little bit more thought sometimes on these hikes that you've got to really watch where your footing mm -hmm. is. And, you know, and in some of them, to be honest with you, not to be overly dramatic, you know, if you don't pay attention, it could be disastrous. Yeah. So that to me makes me very focused and, and the fact that it's you know terrifying, you know, that just kind of adds to it for me a little bit. But 
Yeah, I absolutely. I think that the you know the hers that, that developed that list. It's the best list I've ever you know hiked up myself. I, I, I like you said, I constantly go back to those hikes. And one of them on that list, the the, the North Tripyramid Slide, I've done twenty three times. Oh my god, that's in my neighborhood. You'll have to give me a buzz next time you're out there. Oh wow, yeah, that's a great that's a great hike. I t- I took my daughter up there. Yeah, that's it is my favorite hike. That one, that loop. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I I have oh, a question. Ahead. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you needed uh, assistance or help, or what? What's your most <laughs> scary moment on those hikes? <laughs> you know what? People ask me that on top of that hike when I when I tell them I've done it twenty three times. <laughs> um, I've never found myself needing assistance. I will tell you that on the Salt Tri Pyramid slide at the very top, I had stopped just to take in the view and just you know take a little break before I went down and. And I heard something rustling to the right of me, and I looked over and think it was going to be a moose. And you think I would have picked up my phone and get the camera going? I, just, I did not. But it was a big uh, male bear came right out, looked at me. It was just like in a cartoon. Wow. His eyes got wide. <laughs> like, you could almost see like the big uh, cartoon you know thing above his head, like you know, yikes. He just turned and ran at away at the top. Uh, yeah, very at the top. I, at the top. I could not believe that's how, unusual. Yes, exactly, and that's why I wasn't expecting wow. a bear. But uh, you know, it was a big bear. So once he left, I mean, I didn't run. I didn't panic. You know, I yelled, "Get away, bear!" I bet. But I bet you would have ran down that south slide. If I could have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I went down about 20, 30 yeah. yards afterwards, and I sat there for about twenty-five minutes, hoping he'd come back. As I had the camera out, <laughs> that bear did not come back. So, no. Wow, isn't that interesting? Yeah, I always say that salt slide is sketchy because it's not, I mean, it, it is, the footing's tough, but I feel like if most people will go up the north slide first, and I feel like, I, me personally, I've done it, I think I've done that slide like three times, and I've done the loop. I feel like you do the north slide, and you're like sort of your adrenaline and your sense of accomplishment is so great that, all right, I made it up the slide, and you forget that the salt slide is pretty sketchy to go down, and you're more susceptible to, it is you know, getting lax, and you're paying mm-hmm. attention to your footing and falling down well as you guys know that um, most accidents yeah. happen on the way down because of that very reason you think you're done you get the summit and and you know my hug is over but no it is not you're still gonna get down and that one is very sketchy at times yeah yeah, yeah exactly you know what my favorite uh, t25 is i think is the the great gully mm-hmm. trail going up the um, that's a, that's very challenging yeah, that's a good one yeah I, I enjoy that but if anybody is looking you know if you've if if you're looking to, for new ideas on hikes, I definitely encourage people to to take a look at it. Go with a friend if you can. Don't do solo stuff like Jack does, um, unless you're you're really confident. But um, it's it's a great yeah great list to to focus on. My second round when I did it solo, I did it in four four months and twenty two days. Oh, wow, that's quick. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm the second fastest. <laughs> Bring your PLB. <laughs> yeah. I have one. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Am I right, Colonel? You're a hundred percent right. I I just want to circle back for yeah exactly I just want to circle back for a sec. Um, I really think that uh, Civil Air Patrol is a fantastic opportunity for people that um, want to give back to the community in New Hampshire for search and rescue, but may not necessarily be too thrilled about you know midnight calls carrying somebody that's perhaps uh, a three hundred pound person downhill. I mean it's so. Pr- so prone to injury and this and that. There's so many opportunities. We've all it's, done that. <laughs> it's the same idea. It's like you have the trail stewards. You have uh, so many volunteer opportunities. And, uh, man, uh, I would consider signing up at this point. I mean, Civil Air Patrol sounds absolutely fantastic. It's amazing. 
<laughs> yeah, hey, absolutely. So great opportunities. Well, go on that website that he talked about and find the one local to you. <laughs> yeah, and Jack, before we, so we want to move on to one other topic to cover with both of you. But um, before we move on, one other thing we wanted to find out from you. So you've got a, you've got a badass Jeep Wrangler that you drive around, <laughs> and I've seen photos. Is the hard top back on it now? At this, I point? don't have a hard top. I have a soft top. Oh, only. you don't. Well, your regular top. It is, is on, on, and the doors are on now. Yes, that's not a truck. Okay, oh, okay. <laughs> so. Um, Stomp has here in the notes here to, to sort of ask your opinion uh, between Jeeps and Tacomas. So I think you got to be careful though, because I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure Stomp has a Tacoma. So don't offend him, but you want to know the difference. Oh, there's no question. There's no question. Yes. <laughs> well, at least you're not talking about Broncos. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the uh, what is it? The, Just kidding, uh, all the Bronco owners. The, what's yeah. that new Honda uh, Ridgeline? Like, no, please, no, no. No. Um. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm Tacoma guy. I'm just teasing. <laughs> I know. That. I know. Do you do any off road stuff? No, nah, just some of the trails that you know that like class four you know roads that get to the trailheads and things like that. But yeah. No. You know, I, I gotta say, I like. It's my only vehicle. If I roll that over and destroy yeah. it, my wife is gonna be very mad at me. So I don't. <laughs> yeah. I, don't pull off I think for like search and rescue and stuff, I think either vehicle would be great. But I've I found myself in some pretty deep snow on back roads trying to get to like ravine lodge in the middle of the winter and like hey yeah i think you're good to go with either truck for sure i think but i'm sure tacomas are definitely better Oh, I'm just kidding. Well, I'm, I'm working on getting a Wrangler someday, but I, have, I haven't got there yet. So well, my daughter was 55 before I could afford one. So <laughs> all right, so I got a few more years. My daughters are all yelling at me. They're like, "Why can't we get a Jeep Wrangler? I want one so I can drive it around. I want a white one." And I'm like, "I." I will I tell you this on the Jeeps: the, yeah. the gas mileage is opposite what you would think on the highway. Okay. It's lower than in the city because they are so unaerodynamic. <laughs> that they, okay. they're so flat that they just they don't do as well on the highway as they do in the city which is total opposite mm. even though they'll yeah. tell you that on their stickers when you go to buy one it's not true mm. yeah interesting well we'll see I got a few too, you don't buy one for gas mileage i can tell you that yeah exactly if i get 17 i'm happy <laughs> well with covid everyone working from home now it's not yeah. that big of a deal anymore well, right so. <laughs> yeah the last year and a half or whatever was fine but yeah exactly all right well this is good stuff so i think stop did you want to move into our next segment here with we're going to be talking about uh some possibly top secret stuff here so uh, this is uh <laughs> the, we'll just touch upon this briefly uh this is this week is the 60th anniversary of the famous betty and barney hill case and um, yeah, it's really interesting. It's it's a New Hampshire topic because this happened up on uh, in North Woodstock, exit thirty three. And you know, we're not going to do a deep dive here, but I do want to connect it to some things we've been talking about tonight. So just briefly, September nineteenth, this is nineteen sixty one. These two people were, you know, allegedly uh, abducted by a UFO, and they, you know, I I don't know. They they found them later on down the road, and this and that. And uh, I guess it was the first alien abduction claim in the U.S. They used hypnotic regression to figure out their memories and this and that. Um, so it's it's pretty interesting. And it got me thinking about the UFO thing. I'm like, hey, I wonder if Civil Air Patrol has any interesting history or like you know connections with this, <laughs> or if the uh, colonel would have any comments on this. So I did some searching, of course, and I I did find two stories, July sixteenth, nineteen eighty. Uh, let's see, a Civil Air Patrol cadet from 
Dobbins Air Force Base, visiting Kirtland Air Force Base, New Mexico, observed a dull metallic colored UFO flying. This story is awesome. I love this one. Ready? Near Pecos, New Mexico. Uh, he was with, the, with 10 other individuals, including U.S. Air Force active duty airmen, and all witnessed the sightings. They took some pictures of the object, observed the UFO land in a clearing approximately 250 yards north, northwest of the training area, dot, dot, dot. Uh, they observed an individual dressed in a metallic suit depart the craft and walk a few feet away. And here's where it gets great. The letter went on to claim that uh, this individual from, I believe, a civil Air Patrol had been visited the next day by a man in a dark suit with black hair and sunglasses <laughs> who claimed to be from Sandia Laboratories and who told him that he had seen something he shouldn't have seen, a secret craft from Los Alamos. The, quote, man in black <laughs> demanded all the photographs that he had taken. Uh, but, the, but he told him, hey, I, they're, no, they're no longer in my possession, so I don't know what to tell you. And... Um, Anyway, it's just funny. It's interesting to think about. And I was just curious if um, uh, the colonel had any anecdotes or any interesting stories or information about this stuff. I don't even know how to respond to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, but we'd have to kill you. I, well, yeah, I have no doubt. Do you have a black suit in your closet? It's dark gray. <laughs> And from a distance, my blue uniform could look black, but no, um, um, but no, you know, I, I'll be quite honest with you. I know nothing at all. I mean, I was a kid and I used to read Project Blue Book or watch the TV series, you know, but, but all that stuff is, um, I, yeah, no idea. They, they didn't brief me in on any of that. Hey, you know, your wing commander here, here's all the UFO reports, read these. Nope. Nope. The There's none of that. None of that. <laughs> the secret book. I wish. Oh, I wish I could funny. I wish I could give you some salacious detail, but unfortunately I have none. <laughs> well, that's actually comforting in, in a sense, I suppose. <laughs> well, we don't want the black the guys in the black suits to come visit us, so we can't talk about it. <laughs> hey, look, I saw men in black, you know what they did, the thing with the light. Look at it, look here, you know? Yeah, the flashy, the flashy, flashy. You didn't do that flashy, flashy thing on me, did you? Oh man, that's great! So there you go. The 60th anniversary of the first alien abduction, apparently. Amazing. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and there is a uh, there's a commemorative marker f regarding the Hills sighting because it was probably one of the early cases to get a lot of publicity. But I, I feel like. You know, part of me thinks like, okay, maybe there's something to this, but there's also, I think with UFO sightings, particularly when you went back into the 50s and 60s and 70s, there's a little bit of an aspect of this, uh, what you can call social contagion, is that, you know, one report results in additional reports and you get this social contagion piece and there's different things, they've got different evidence of different types of things that cause social contagions, but I think UFOs are a really good example of that where the more they're reported, the more likely other people are going to say that they saw something. And it's very difficult to decipher through something that may be legitimate. And I think mm -hmm. most of these are just, you know, maybe they're well-meaning and they really think they saw something. But I, I think a lot of them are just due to the social contagion aspect. It is interesting, though, that the government just came out. They released a lot of records and there's some sightings that they have no way to describe what happened. So who knows? 
Yeah, lately yeah. there's been an uptick in reporting yeah. for whatever reason. Interesting. I mean, there's been plenty of times I've looked at it. I've seen something flying overhead, and I've looked at it and went, is that what the heck? And, you know, where's the engines? And I'm like, yeah. you look at it for a few minutes, and you go, oh, there's yeah. the engine. Oh, okay, I'm looking at it from a wrong angle. Oh, I see what I'm looking at. So mm. I'm sure a lot of that's yeah. it. That's the reason. Yeah. 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 And our again, satellites. <laughs> and our satellites visible from here, looking up in a dark sky. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, that's what I thought. I just wanted to confirm that because I, I'm like, oh, that's got to be a satellite that's moving so damn fast. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. If it's going, if it's going uh, horizon to horizon in like six minutes, that's that's definitely yeah. a satellite. Well, Stomp thought he was going to break some news with UFOs around here, but it's it's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Oh. <laughs> oh, man, this has been a great conversation, guys. I, I thank you so much for coming in. And uh, I, I think we should probably wrap up. But first, I want to say, Jack, how do people get a hold of you on social media? If you have any, if Just you want to reveal on that. Facebook, you know, Jack Daly on Facebook. I'm out there. All right. Awesome. And Colonel, I don't know if you're on Facebook or anything like that, but how do we get a hold of you or if anybody's interested in volunteering? I know you guys said it once, but let's go through it again quick. Sure, absolutely. Well, there's the national, if, if you're outside of the Granite State, there's the National Civil Air Patrol website, gociviléairpatrol.com. And uh, there's a unit locator. Mm -hmm. You can locate your uh, nearest units. And I recommend to anybody to... You know, visit your local unit and check the flavor. See if it's what you want to do. Every unit's a little bit different than the other. Here in New Hampshire, nhwg.cap.gov is our wing website, um, and you can mm -hmm. uh, uh, you can look up the local units. You can get into touch with them. Uh, you can even just reach out through our New Hampshire wing uh, Facebook page. And I am on Facebook, uh, Colonel Ninnis, C-O-L Ninnis. Uh, that's my official Facebook page. So that's where I get all my, my fan mail. My voluminous fan mail comes there. <laughs> it's going to blow up now. Look out. Oh. <laughs> I, I'm, I said I'm a, I'm a recruiter, so, you know, send it. Yeah. We're all recruiters at, from what I looked on the, uh, my training. Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, we'll make sure that we put the, all these links in our show notes. Um, so we'll... We'll include that. Excellent. Thank you. No, thanks for inviting us. Hey, thanks a lot. We really appreciate being here today. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com you can also follow the show on facebook and instagram we hope you'll join us next week for another great show until next time on behalf of mike and stomp get out there and crush some peaks now covered in scratches blisters and bug bites chris staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever Fish and game officers say the hiker from florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning he was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Only one hill! Here's Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me.
What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? Seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.